0: Turn with me to Mark chapter 9 as we continue our study in the book of Mark. Mark chapter 9. We'll be looking at verses 30 through 41 today. Before we do so, let's go again to the Lord in prayer and ask that He would help us as we come to His Holy Word. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to Your Word... We pray that you would help us. We read here in this story uh, about a group of people who do not understand and were afraid to ask you. Lord, we pray that when we are that way, that you would help us. That you would help us to understand. That you would make us not afraid to ask you. And we ask you now for help. We ask that you would convict us of our sin. That you would lead us to the truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And so as I read through this passage this week, um, it made me think of Thor's hammer. I know it sounds really strange, but just bear with me here. You know, the the hammer that's Mjolnir, I think that's the correct pronunciation. I'm sure I'll get corrected if it's not. But for now, that, that stands. On the side of the hammer, it reads these words. Whosoever holds his hammer, if they be worthy, shall possess the power of Thor. And that whole, if they, if they be worthy, is a very common theme that runs through the comics. It ran through a lot of the Marvel movies as well because others tried to lift his hammer and they just couldn't do it because they weren't worthy. They had some sort of character defect and they were found unworthy to lift his hammer. Superheroes are not known for their humility at all. So the hammer has a way of being kind of a moral compass to humble them. Helping us to remember that the good guys are in many ways just less bad than the bad guys. I think the Marvel movies actually do a good job of showing us that as well. But what does this have to do with the text that we're looking at today? The reason it made me think of that is because Jesus has several interactions here with the disciples as we're going to look through this. That lead me to believe that the disciples were beginning to think more of themselves... Than they should have. They may have thought they were finally worthy to lift Thor's hammer. In our text today, we will see this front and center. Jesus uses another person as an illustration as of how the disciples should be. He uses a child. Lots of things have been written about this passage. Probably more about the one that's in chapter ten. That's kind of a kind of similar to this, where he says, "Let the children come." We'll get into that in a few weeks. So as always, I think context is important for us to help us to derive the meaning from this. As we do that, we'll see that we are like the disciples in many ways, in the ways that we consider ourselves too highly at times, particularly when it comes to the work of Christ in this world. We'll see that when we focus on the task at hand, rather than focusing on ourselves, when we focus on Christ, rather than focusing on how good we are, our ministry will become more about the glory of God on earth and less about our own glory. So as we consider this text, I want to break it down into three parts. First, the suffering servant, then sharing in the sufferings, and then lastly, sharing the burden. And so with that, let's look together at the text. Mark chapter 9, starting at verse 30 and reading to verse 41. Please stand with me in the honor of reading of God's holy word. Mark chapter 9, verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he sat down and called the twelve and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, teacher, we just saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he's not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him. For no one who, has, who does a mighty work in my name will soon be able, will, will be able soon afterwards to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So to kind of set up the context here, remember in chapter 8 where Peter had his famous confession, you are the Christ, we marked this as a major turning point in the book and how Jesus, after this point, is slowly making his way toward the city of Jerusalem, which would spell the end of his life. He's going to still teach in other places. Here he is in Galilee. He goes to Capernaum. He's obviously going to other places, but it, it changes the things that are talked about. In this book, we're going to see less miracles. We're going to see less of the healings that were going on and more of the teachings of Christ. In Luke's gospel, you see this very poignantly as... You see this marked change in the way that Luke even writes about the travelings of the disciples. We read things like Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem or while they were on their way to Jerusalem, they stopped at this place in that place. So Luke is constantly reminding us that he's on his way to Jerusalem through the whole like back half or more of the book. And the main idea is that while those miracles and those healings of Jesus did much to demonstrate his power as the Son of God, absolutely they're important, he was headed to Jerusalem to do the work of the suffering servant, which is also part of the work of the Son of God. It was written about by Isaiah and others. We're going to look at Isaiah in just a second. As we get into this text today, we're going to see some of the beginnings of that and the effect that this is having on the disciples. And I think it helps us to see our own hearts in this as well. And so with that let's look together at the first point. The suffering servant. Look with me at verses 30 through 32 again. They went from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples saying to them. The son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. And they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying. And were afraid to ask him. So Remember. All the time they had spent in Galilee, Jesus is known in Galilee, and now he doesn't want to be seen or heard. And notice why he doesn't want to be seen or heard. Because he's now teaching his disciples, there's about to be a time when I'm going to be delivered into the hands of men. There are a few things that we have to understand about this. Because this isn't the first time that we've read Jesus saying these things about himself. That he's going to die, that he's going to be rejected by the scribes and the Pharisees, and so forth. This isn't the first time we're reading it, and so you know then Jesus has been telling this to the disciples multiple times. This isn't the first time they're hearing it either. In fact, their connection of Jesus as the Christ should automatically connect their minds at least, and ours as well as we know Scripture, to passages like the one that we find in Isaiah 52 and 53, where the servant has to die, the Son of God, the servant of God, has to die for the people of God. And they knew those passages. So turn with me. Isaiah fifty-two verse thirteen. Isaiah fifty-two verse thirteen. And we're going to read through to part of fifty-three or fifty-two, thirteen, to fifty-three, verse six. And the chapter division here is I don't think a very good one. So I'm going to start. Again, verse 13 and read through to verse 6 and just I want you to watch as we're reading this I want you to hear the work of Christ and what he has come to do and then we're going to apply that to what we just read behold my servant shall act wisely he shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted as many were astonished at you his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So just hear the language there. This is written several hundred years ago. But it really is just a picture of the crucifixion of Christ and the, the redemptive work of Christ. He His appearance was so marred beyond human resemblance. He was despised and rejected by men. Man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. These are verses that we've heard before concerning Jesus. Now imagine that they were being said, Put your shoes in the Put yourself in the shoes of the disciples. Imagine these verses, which the disciples knew well. Imagine they're being said about your good friend that you've walked with for a few years. Literally did everything together for a few years together. Imagine him starting to talk, this man that's your friend. Imagine him starting to talk about his death more and more. You're beginning to realize that this, these things that are being said, are being said about him. And this time is approaching soon. This is what Mark writes about when he says, but they did not understand the saying and they were afraid to ask him. They've probably all along realized what all this was about. And now we're starting to come to the realization of it. And maybe they thought, maybe if we just don't ask about it, then it won't become a reality. I think we've all felt that before. Maybe if I, maybe if I just don't ask, then it won't actually come to fruition. We've all been there. They're coming to this realization about Jesus. That he suffered and died and he bled. And it was the will of the Father to crush him so that the redemption of the people of God might take place. I think too often we have this strange view of Jesus. Either on one extreme or the other, really. Depending on kind of your personality type, more than likely. We see them as, the, see him as this gentle lamb that kind of Floated through the countryside and touched people on the head. Or we like to see him as this macho tough guy Jesus who turned over tables and called the Pharisees a bunch of snakes. Yes, it's true that he healed many, that he was a gentle man. It's also true that he broke tables and was fearless when he came to his conversations with the establishment. But Jesus was a troubled man. What does Isaiah say of him? Man of sorrow, acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He not only dealt with his impending death his whole life. It's not like he came to the realization that he was born to die later on in life. He knew this about himself throughout his whole life. Can you imagine that? Knowing the day of your death and knowing what that means. He not only dealt with his impending death his whole life, but understand what Isaiah is saying here. Surely he has borne our griefs. Think of your grief by yourself. Have you ever personally been unable to bear your own grief and your own sorrow? Surely he has borne all of our grief and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken. We esteemed him as cursed. Smitten by God and afflicted, that yet he bore our griefs, we still see him as cursed. Don't forget that when Jesus was crucified, most of the onlookers saw a man who deserved his fate. Crucify him, is what they said. And the truth of it is that he did. Not because he did wrong, but because I did. Because you did. What did he do with my sins and your sins? He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities upon him laid upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. So when we read here of the disciples, they did not understand the saying that they were afraid to ask him. Understand the depth of what's going on here. They could not possibly grasp this at all. However, What does the Apostle Paul say concerning the sufferings of Jesus Christ? Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. You probably have this verse memorized. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. We love to know that part of Jesus, right? The power of his resurrection. And may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in death. And I think these two vignettes are going to help us to see our own hearts here. And we should ask ourselves, is this something that we want? To share in the sufferings of Christ. To become like Him in death. That brings me to the next point, sharing the sufferings, back in Mark 9, 33 and 34. And they came to Capernaum, and when He was in the house, He asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had been, argue- they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. I kind of, Really like this little thing that's going on here. They were in Capernaum at a familiar place, though we don't know whose house it was. It does say the house, and so it was a place that was probably known to all of them. They're all there, they're comfortable, so Jesus asked them a question. Now remember, Jesus is asking, just like when I ask my students, I hear a conversation my students are saying, and I said, what are you guys talking about? No, I'm not asking them to find out what they're talking about. I knew exactly what they were talking about, which is why I asked the question to begin with. I want to hear them. Jesus wasn't asking for information here as if he didn't know something. He's asking to probe the hearts of his disciples. We all get the picture of what's going on here. We're probably all getting the same image as we imagine what's going on here. Jesus asks a question while they're all sitting around talking. Maybe they're eating dinner or finishing up. They're all kind of jovial maybe. Jesus asked this question and then all of a sudden everyone goes silent. You can hear a pin drop. The disciples are looking around at each other wondering which one is going to tell the truth first. Because they all know that their conversation wasn't a good one to be having. Every one of them. Especially if you consider the context of what just happened with them. Jesus told them that he's going to die. They didn't understand. They didn't even want to ask him about it. But on the way, with that in the context, they started talking about, well, which one of us is the best? Can you imagine the Gospels if we didn't have the disciples in them? It would be about a perfect man doing everything right, loving people the right way, loving his enemies, and we'd all be thinking, I can't even begin to do this. However, with the disciples, we have a picture of other guys who couldn't do it either. And I'm thankful because these are doing the things that I would be doing. I would take that conversation Jesus just said, hey, I'm about to die, about to be delivered in the hands of men. I'm going to be rejected by the scribes and the Pharisees. Really, be concerned about that, and then not ask him. And five minutes later, be arguing with my friends about which one of us is the best. That's the kind of stuff that we do. I like the disciples not because it makes me feel better about myself, but it helps me understand the patience of our loving Savior. Notice what he does here when he asks this question of the disciples, verse thirty-five. And he sat down, and he called the twelve, and he said to them, "If anyone would be first, he must be last." Of all and servants of all. We don't hear that the disciples confessed what they were talking about. Jesus knew exactly what they were talking about. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. He sits them all down. He gives them a very vivid object lesson. He has one of the children there come among them. If anyone be first, he must be last. He must be a servant. Whoever receives one such child receives me. Pretty incredible. Most of the scholars believe that this is probably Peter's home because they had been in Peter's home before and it, wasn't, it was a common place for them to meet. So the child that Jesus was holding here may have been one of Peter's for all we know. We don't really know. And the word here for child is the one that's often used for infants. And so this was a little kid, a little one that Jesus could literally hold that couldn't come to him, but he, he took the child is what the text says. So imagine the lesson here. Jesus is holding this baby that's absolutely defenseless, has absolute need. A baby can't forage for food. It can't take care of itself at all. Yet the child rests on the child, rests the very image of, of God the same dignity that you and I have as as adults and the disciples were arguing so which one of us is the best and Jesus says if you want to be the best make sure that you're taking care of the ones like this he says if you receive them that's how you receive me understand this this isn't a verse about children's ministry it could work with children's ministry sure This is a verse about how a people who think they are great, yet they don't even consider those around them who are considered last. Jesus is saying the way that you receive them, those who are considered last, the way that you receive them is the way that you receive me. Do you want to know what it's like to share in the sufferings of Christ? When he says to us here, whoever receives one like this receives me. Will it be said of us concerning the way that we receive people like this, but they did not understand and they were afraid to ask? I bring this to you as a person who is easily worn out by people. If you know me well, you know that. I struggle with the least bit of uncomfortable I love to just be quiet and read in peace for many hours and that would be the perfect day for me. What Jesus is talking about here is hard and it's not comfortable and it's not easy and it is worn out because it involves sharing in his sufferings. Did Jesus come to save a bunch of people who were the greatest? No, he came to save people like us, which cost him his life. What is it costing you in your ministry to others? Again, this isn't a guilt trip. Don't feel don't feel guilty here. This isn't a way, oh, he's making me feel bad. Don't do that. Rather, take an inventory of those around you. Those who society looks at and says, last. They exist. They're some of the hardest people to love. We know that. It's loving folks like that that teaches us what it means to share in the sufferings of Jesus Christ. This next bit shows us That we don't have to do this alone. Sharing the burden. Look with me at verse 38. And John said to him, assuming we're in the same context here. Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he was not following us. John does what some of us would do in this situation. When I read this, I immediately get John's attitude completely. You know, they're in this elite group. They've been doing these elite things. John's seen someone else trying to do those things. We're like, wait, but you're not like us. How can you be doing those things? Don't forget, the disciples, just in the last little story that we read, tried to cast out a demon, and they couldn't do it. They couldn't do it. And there's John saying, hey, you shouldn't be doing that. Leave that up to the experts like us, as if they were the local experts. And all the other people were just kind of the do-it-yourself riffraff. The disciples were the most riffraff group Ever assembled. And here they are trying to be exclusive. And again, Jesus is patient. Thankfully. Look at verses 39 and 40. Jesus said, do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able to be, will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is, is not against us is for us. Jesus makes sure that they understand That Jesus' disciples is not the brand here. Jesus is the brand. The whole point of the ministry of Jesus is so that people might believe and be saved. And whether a person hears the gospel from Jesus, Peter, John, or that guy across the street that's casting out demons that also loves Jesus, it doesn't matter. What matters is that the name by which all men and women might be saved is being proclaimed. That's it. We understand this kind of brand loyalty here. I think John is demonstrating. I think the American church, unfortunately, has exemplified this more than any church in the history of churches. Because we're so comfortable. And we like our little thing. Church members are oftentimes seen as commodities. You get with a group of pastors, they kind of talk about church members that way, sadly, trading them, guarding them closely. All the while, there are white fields to be harvested out there, but yet they they want the ones that are hopping from church to church. Some of you have heard this, but when I went to Wells in 2007, we worked with a small Methodist church there for a few weeks. The group that I was with was a group of ARP folks. And they were Methodists only in name because no one there could have told you what Methodism really was. They just had always went to church there, and it was literally just a few people. It was like a group of ten. They were all from one family. And there were churches like this all over the area, tiny churches with old names. Most of the parishioners had no idea what those names meant. They just know this is where we went to church. This is where such and such talked to me about Jesus. One evening, a young man was going to be baptized after recently being converted to Christ. It took place in this old historic Baptist church in the middle of this small village that we were staying in. And we were invited to come. And it was one of the most incredible showings of the church I've ever seen. Every church from miles around packed in this little Baptist church. Because it wasn't a victory for that Baptist church. It was a victory for Christ's church. It was one of the coolest things I've ever seen as a believer. When it comes to the ministry of those who are considered last, which ultimately is anyone without Christ. This has nothing to do with social standing or any of those things. All the people that don't have Christ will be considered last. How will we respond when we see another Christian, another church doing the work? When we see another church doing well, how do we want to respond to that? It could be that they don't do church like we do church. Maybe their doctrine isn't quite right. Maybe their worship is a bit over the top. Maybe they're too serious. Maybe they're not serious enough. But the question is, is the name of Christ being preached? Is the name of Christ being glorified? Are people being saved? Are people being loved and cared for? then who are we to stand in the opposition to the work of Christ and his church? And I admit my own difficulty here. I'm a man of doctrinal conviction, which is totally fine to be a man of doctrinal conviction. But the more I look around, the more I see a dying world. I think we've been given a, a healthy dose of that this year. The more we partner with brothers and sisters in Christ, the more the name of Christ will be glorified and served. That's just the facts, brothers and sisters in Christ. Let me encourage you, Redeemer Community Church, look for opportunities to partner with others in your own personal ministries. We are not exclusive here. We are not our own little brand. Our brand is Christ. We as a church should look for ways to partner with others as well. We aren't going to wake up one day and the world's going to be better unless we wake up, of course, in the presence of Christ, which that would be incredible. I look forward to that day, but until then, we are here, and we have work to do, and we can't do it alone. At all, we can't. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ that saves the sinners. So we must always be faithful in preaching that gospel, absolutely. But let us also be faithful partners in ministry with other churches as we seek to glorify the name of Jesus Christ. So in conclusion, we'll probably... Never get to that point that we can lift up Thor's hammer, be considered worthy in and of ourselves. Because we're, when we get to that point, when we look at ourselves in the mirror and say, you're worthy, we have strayed far from Christ, brothers and sisters. Let us look upon him and proclaim him, Jesus, as worthy. He is worthy. He is the spotless lamb of God who suffered for his people that they might have eternal life. How will we share in the sufferings of Christ? Church, pray for understanding on this. Don't be among those who the, the text would say they didn't understand and they were afraid to ask. Ask the Lord, how might I share in your sufferings? That's a hard prayer. Be amazed what the Lord calls you to do in his service when you pray that prayer. Let us work together with the church at large to love the lost and glorify the name of Jesus Christ. Let's go to in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to you again, we are thankful for your patience with us because I could have easily been sitting right there with the disciples thinking I was one of the best, thinking nobody else better be casting out demons in your name. Because I've thought that so many times of my own life, of my own ministry. And so, Lord, help us. We need forgiveness. We need your mercy. And we need your strength. We need your grace to do the work that you've called us to do. Help us, Lord. Show us what it means to share in your sufferings. Show us the work that we ought to be doing so that your name will be glorified. We pray this in your name. Amen.